Heavenly Father, uh, we give this time over to you. We acknowledge that you have ordained it and have called many to be a part of it from wherever they may be, all over the world, your body united by your word. And Father, as we return to it tonight uh, with many things on our minds, I'm sure, the turmoil of our day, the events of the world, and the uncertainties of our future, Father, we know one thing is certain, that the world you've prepared for us, the one that we're studying now, is soon to come. And all that you have prepared for us, Father, will be exactly as your word describes, and we thank you for it, we're excited for it, how much, Father, this world reminds us of why we long for the next. So, Father, help us understand it better tonight. Help it become more real for us so that we will look forward to it and not focus, Father, on the world that is failing around us. For you've told us that will be the case. Thank you for the privilege that it is in this day and age to study it through the means that you've provided. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, as I said, we're moving forward in our study of the kingdom. We're taking our study another step forward. We've been doing it in sections, as you remember, and let me give you a quick reminder of what we studied last week in the first section on the kingdom itself. Last week, we looked at changes to the creation. So we wanted to understand what happens to the world itself, to uh, nature, animal kingdom, geography, uh, to some extent even the government. So here's what we learned. First, we learned that the natural world, the creation itself, will begin to return to a state that it once knew before the fall of Adam, back in the time of the garden. The animal kingdom will no longer have predators and prey Uh, animals will no longer eat meat, so they won't see each other as dinner. Likewise, human beings will no longer have uh, any kind of adversarial relationship with animals. They will not feel threatened by us, so uh, we can be uh, friends, if you will. We can have pets of any kind. And these changes, as I told you last time, all represent a partial reversal of the curses that God pronounced on the earth after the fall. There was one change, though, one Uh, aspect of those curses that was not going to be reversed, at least not in the kingdom, and that had to do with the curse given to the serpent, to the snake. The snake in the kingdom will still crawl on its belly because it was a memorial of Satan's part in the deception that brought about the fall, and because Satan himself has not been put away with yet, not permanently, therefore the memorial is not done yet either. So for the time of the kingdom, we'll still have a snake that crawls on the ground, The next thing we learned was that Israel will be resettled in its land in this time, but the borders of Israel will increase greatly over what we see today. And in fact, they'll actually be larger than even Solomon's day. They'll be uh, the chief nation on the earth. Jerusalem will be the capital of the world government. And among other changes we heard about, there are some changes to the geography of Israel, beginning with the fact that the land now will produce in abundance without any difficulty at all, another of those curses being reversed from the time of the garden. The land will produce its crops without any effort at all. There won't uh, be any worries of famine or of crop failure and the like. And the mountains, we were told, will have streams on all of them. And this is a way of simply emphasizing the abundance of water and, of course, with that, the ease at which we can grow things. And then there was one mountain in particular that we heard about, a special mountain, the chief mountain on the earth. This will be the place of the kingdom temple. 
It will be in Jerusalem. Jerusalem will sit on top of this mountain with the temple. And we're told uh, in Zechariah that out of this temple will flow a river. This river will split at a point and half of it will go to the Mediterranean Sea, half will go to the Dead Sea. When it hits the Dead Sea, it will make that water fresh from salt water to fresh water and allow fish to live in that place. The temple that sits at the top of that mountain will be the seat of government. We're gonna study a lot more about the temple next week along with the sacrificial system that comes along with it. We'll understand all of that next week. But for now, we just know this is where Jesus will live. This is the place of his government from which he will rule. And we learned that his government is such that he will eliminate all disobedience, all sinful behavior among those who have sin in the world. And that government has a structure. Jesus doesn't do this by himself, although it's all his power, of course. But he enlists others in the government. And we learned the government structure a little bit last week. It was divided into Jewish and Gentile rule, Christ being the head of everything, being king, of course. Then looking at the Jewish side, the Jewish nation would be ruled first by Jesus, but then secondly, under him, Prince David. David, who was once king of Israel, will be resurrected, and he'll get a job in the government. He'll be the number one guy over Israel. And then under him, we heard that the 12 apostles will each rule one of the tribes of Israel settled in the land. And then on the Gentile side, we understood that there would be a government there, although a lot less is said to us about that government. What we did learn, though, is that the church, saints, those who have been saved since Pentecost until the resurrection, until the rapture, that group of believers in the history of the earth will be part of the government of uh, Jesus in that day, ruling over Gentiles. And I should also add, the tribulation saints will also be a part of that government. And Isaiah said last week that in how we execute the orders that Jesus gives us, there's a kind of telepathy, for lack of a better term. That is, we would call out for Jesus and ask his um, guidance on things, much like you would pray today, but in that day it'll be different. We'll be able to address him and hear from him perfectly. And Isaiah says that even as we begin to call on him, he responds in the moment, immediately, so that we can always know perfectly what his will is and executed in the government. Now, as we move on to the next section, this is where we go today. We wanna go today about the daily life and death that takes place in the time of the kingdom. And as we get into that, let's start with a question. We wanna know why there is a government because the nature of the times are such that having a government is directly connected to the fact that there is death in the kingdom because a government is fundamentally a institution designed to deal with lawbreakers. Uh, That is, if there were no lawbreakers, there'd be no need for government. Paul even says this in Romans 13. In Romans 13, three, he says, rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. You see that? Do you wanna have no fear of authority? Well, do what is good and you'll have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So the purpose of government, fundamentally, is to be an instrument of God, a minister of God, he says, to ensure that lawbreakers are punished and good behavior is incentivized or encouraged. So the need for government, you can say, comes as a result of the presence of sin. 
Now, if you take away sin, on the other hand, if there was no sin on the earth, well, then the need for government in any form goes away. Because frankly, everyone would be doing the right thing anyway. You wouldn't need anyone to tell them what to do, much less to adjudicate for any kind of misdeeds. There'd be no misdeeds. Therefore, the fact that there is a government in the kingdom, as we learned last week, tells us that there is sin in the kingdom. There's something to be controlled or ruled over. And as we discussed, the way sin comes into the kingdom is through some of those who enter in. I wanna take a moment to revisit the various groups of humanity who are coming into the time of the kingdom from day one. That'll help you understand where sin is coming from. We learned earlier that there are five different groups of believers that enter the kingdom on day one, while there is, of course, a group of unbelievers who die as Jesus returns. Because of unbelief, they're not allowed to enter into the kingdom at all. So you have, uh, among those within that group, three of the five groups of believers who are coming in in glorified, sinless bodies. Those would include uh, the believers of the church age, you and me. It would also include the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints. Now, because we're sinless, we don't have sin in our nature anymore, we're qualified to be part of the government because as we rule with Jesus, we have no sin involved in our decision-making or in our thought, so we can be useful to him in carrying out the instructions he gives us and knowing that we'll do it perfectly without any problem. But there are two groups who enter in in natural earthly bodies into the kingdom. And those two groups, because they come in with natural bodies, natural is Paul's term in the Bible for the body we gained here in this life, the one that we inherited from Adam, that natural body comes with sin. And so these individuals lived through the whole time of tribulation, they never died during the tribulation, and as a result they were never resurrected into new bodies. And when Jesus returns, because they're still alive, he doesn't kill them, he just welcomes them into the kingdom. And they come in in the nature they already have, the nature of Adam, that is a sinful nature. Now, as they enter into the kingdom, you might ask, well, why are they allowed to enter in if they have sin? Well, remember, the condition for entry into the kingdom is not sinlessness, it's righteousness. And righteousness comes by faith. So as long as they are believers, and all of them are, they have the righteousness of Christ credited to them by faith. And because they are righteous by faith, they may live, they may enter into the kingdom. But they come in a body, in a vessel, that still possesses sin. And because they're still in natural bodies and have not died yet, they have some options, they have some uh, opportunities that we don't have anymore once we're glorified. Specifically, these sinful believers who come out of the tribulation, both Jew and Gentile, will continue to live in those same bodies and because of that they can marry and if they choose to marry and if they uh, take a spouse, they can obviously procreate and, and have children. And so you end up with them producing children to repopulate the earth during the time of the kingdom. And because they have a sinful nature in their earthly body, they will reproduce in the same way. As God said in the garden, we reproduce after our own kind. So who we are is what we reproduce. And they will make sinful children. Remember, unlike the parents that came in on day one who were believers, these children, the first generation and every generation after that, do not 
start as believers. No one gives birth to a believer. We're not born believers. We enter the world lost and in need of salvation, which is why the Bible says we need to be born again when we come to faith so that we can move our spirit from the state it came into the world in and in unbelief to the one that is now believing. So the children of the kingdom will enter into the world not only sinful like their parents, but unbelieving, at least initially. And those who enter with sin, both those who enter believing and their children later who are unbelieving, both of them will need ruling, particularly the ones who are unbelieving. And as they make mistakes, as the same sinful thoughts enter their mind that enter our minds today for that matter, as those things come to bear on their lives and they try to act on some of those sinful thoughts and carry out sin in some form, the government stops that. That is, Jesus in his all-knowing abilities to understand the hearts of all people will be right there with edicts that we implement, that we uh, carry out in the government to stop sin before it goes very far to gain control over it. That's what the Bible means when it says he rules with a rod of iron. There's no give, there's no limp, there, there's no place at, or time in which the government fails to keep up with the sin that's in the world. It maintains a perfect control over it. Sin will never have a chance to, to grow, to mature, to produce harm in the world because it is contained quickly and perfectly. So. For a thousand years, the world will be ruled uh, by a class of humanity that does not die and cannot sin and will not marry or procreate. That's the glorified bodies that you and I will have, others will have that came in in that form. We, you might consider, are a super class of humanity in that we are glorified, eternal, and sinless. And then we will be ruling in a government over a world of natural people, that is, bodies that do die and do possess sin and can reproduce more sinful people who can die and so on. And over time, as this situation continues, you're going to see the earth repopulated by uh, the folks who can have children. But now as you get into this new world that I'm describing, this scenario, there are some intriguing questions that naturally arise about now. Questions that in some cases are very hard to answer. The scriptures don't always give us enough detail, but there are some answers. But some of the questions you might have are like, for example, what is life like for a believer living in the kingdom who's glorified versus what is it like when you're natural? Um, how many people are gonna be born? I mean, uh, do they ever die? Do they all live eternally while they're there? What, what are the rules for life when you have these two different classes of humanity? Well, let's just start with a very simple question. Is there going to be death for those who are naturally uh, inclined? That is, they have the natural body. They came in in a natural state. They're not glorified yet. If they're constantly reproducing, and let's say, for argument's sake, never dying in the time of the kingdom. Well, you start to think about that for a minute and you realize, well, we have a finite number of people ruling because we're not reproducing. And we have a number of natural people who are reproducing and over a thousand years with no death, they're gonna get a lot of them. Are we gonna have enough uh, people in the government to watch over all these people that are multiplying on the earth? I did a little math on this and if you assume for a moment that if only 10,000 believers walk into the kingdom on day one, that is after the kingdom begins, 
And then if you assume that those 10,000 might be roughly made up of 5,000 men and 5,000 women, for argument's sake, such that they can all marry. Let's assume they all marry. Let's assume then that they begin to procreate and have children, but we'll we'll keep a reasonable limit here. Let's say that only 2% of those 10,000 will have one child in a given year. And yet, if none of them are dying, what does that number add up to after 1,000 years? Well, I did the math, and it is just under 4 trillion people. So, If you think about that for a minute, that is an unreasonable number of people on the earth by any standards, the same earth we have today. doesn't seem even possible that we could get to that point. So never mind the fact that that's an impossible number to manage, it would seem. So Isaiah tells us we don't have this worry because there is death. In fact, God uses death in the kingdom to manage the growth of this population. Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 65, 20, no longer will there be in it, meaning in the kingdom, No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. Now this is poetry. The the way the lines are broken in our English text makes that clear. And it's important to note that this is poetry because in Hebrew poetry, there's a style of poetry that you need to recognize if you're gonna make sense of it, in which lines are coupled together but in an alternating pattern. So in this case, the first and the third lines are on the same point, while the second and the fourth lines are also on a separate point. So you have to read it with that understanding. In fact, it's a little easier if we just reorganize these. So if we just number these, you have one and three on the same idea and two and four on the same idea. And then let's just reorganize these so that they go together. It's just easier for us that way. So we'll move them around a little bit. So now we have it reading, no longer will there be in it, in the kingdom, an infant who lives but a few days, for the youth will die at the age of 100. Or an old man who does not live out his days, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. So let's take a look at each of these phrases separately. We'll start with the first and the third. Let's look at that one. Isaiah reports that no longer in this time, in the time of the kingdom, will there be an infant who dies. So effectively we're saying there is no infant mortality in the kingdom, period. Now, obviously, there are going to be children born in the kingdom. That's already been stated, and this gives a confirmation of that. But no longer will a child be at risk of a childhood disease or a childhood tragedy. Children will not die young. And just the fact that this can be true in the kingdom is proof that God controls life and death. We could spend some time on this topic, and unfortunately, with what we have to cover tonight, We won't be able to do that at any length, but I'd like you to think about that, maybe on your own. If God can set up circumstances in the kingdom such that children are assured that they will not die, well, then he could do it here now if he wanted to. He could do it anytime. It's obviously within his control, but the fact that he waits for the kingdom to put that into place simply tells you that when we see death coming now, whether it's a child or an older person, doesn't make any difference. We're seeing God select the day of that person's death. The book of Job tells us that, in fact, that the day of our birth and the day of our death was selected for us by God before we were born. And so you might ask yourself, how much are you doing through your worry, 
through your effort to change anything when it comes to the day of your death. The Bible would say nothing. But going back to the text, we have this fundamental principle that there is no infant mortality. Going to the next verse, the next part of the verse, Isaiah says that the earliest that a child can die is at the age of 100. And in fact, a person will be considered a youth if they do die at 100. And that must tell us that life goes on much longer than we see here today. That is, if dying at 100 to that world is like someone dying in youth, well then, how long can people live? Remember, of course, that in the very beginning, men lived quite long. Men and women lived much longer than we do now. And here again, you see in this change a movement back to the way God had made things before Adam fell, that life was not supposed to end physically, for one thing, and even after God instituted the curse that resulted in physical death, it took a while for that to take hold. If you're interested in why that's true, you can study more about that in the Genesis study. We go into that in much more detail. But in the time of the kingdom, no one's dying young, and the earliest anyone can die is age 100. Looking at the next part of that verse, in the second and fourth lines. Isaiah says that an old man will never fail to live out his days in the kingdom, which is a way of saying there is no death from old age either. You can't die young and you can't die old. People will live hundreds of years, just as was the case in the ancient world. And we don't know what the aging process will be like or if there will be an aging process. In fact, I think we'll look at this a little later today, but I think there's an argument to be made that we don't age in the kingdom, that there's a lack of perception of age for a reason that we'll cover in a minute. But Adam, if you remember, lived 969 years, so even before the kingdom, we had people living almost to the length of a 1,000 years, and it seems as though that will happen again. But you notice there is this 100th year point that's being made in this verse, The one who does not pass the 100th year will be accursed, thought to be accursed, Isaiah says. In other words, there comes a moment at the 100th year when people are known for who they are. To be accursed means to fall under condemnation from God, uh, and in this case, in the context, that would mean we're talking about people who are assigned to eternal judgment in hell. So we know only an unbeliever can go to hell. Obviously, God does not send believers there. So what we're hearing is that if you die at age 100, it's evidence that you are an unbeliever. You are accursed. Dying at age 100 seems to be the key. And so this 100th birthday moment during the kingdom is a watershed moment. Let me try to give you a picture or a drawing of what we're hearing from Isaiah. There will be those who are born in the kingdom at some point. We'll just pick any point in the thousand years, doesn't matter. And as they're born, we know if they're born in the kingdom, they're not coming in as a believer on day one. You're born naturally in the uh, image of Adam, so you are an unbeliever. And you're allowed to live by God's grace for at least 100 years. There's no death before age 100. And as you come into existence and as you live your life, you get to your 100th birthday. And if you have not believed in the gospel by your 100th birthday, that is, if you're still an unbeliever on that day, then the Bible says you're accursed. You will die, and you'll be considered as dying young in light of how long you could have lived if you had been a believer. Clearly, uh, that is different than we know today. 
But then Isaiah goes on to say that if you take another person who comes into this world, similarly, unbelieving at first, but as they go through their life, at some point, they come to faith. And as they come to faith, their future now has changed. As they continue to go through the rest of their life in the kingdom and they hit their 100th birthday, it's no longer a day of any significance because they are now free to move past that date, not given that they're a believer, and they will live out their days to the end of the kingdom because there's no death in old age either. This is an all or nothing proposition according to Isaiah. Unbelievers only live 100 years. Believers enjoy the duration of the kingdom. And clearly this is a very different economy of life and death than we know here today. And I think it's different because it's sending a very clear message in a very unique time of world history. This message is the kingdom is meant to be enjoyed by believers. And we know that from the beginning of it, obviously, because only believers can come in. But it's a message that continues to be emphasized in the years afterward by how death takes hold of unbelievers at a certain precise moment. It is that precision and that severity that is actually in keeping with Jesus' overall style of government during this time, a rod of iron, no flexibility. There's a very strict form of government that ensures a perfect, peaceful life in light of sin. Now, if believers do not die in the kingdom, as I showed you in my second example there, if a believer comes to faith, uh, a person comes to faith, they're now a believer, and they pass their 100th birthday and they just keep living into the kingdom, that raises the next question, which is, well, when do they receive their new eternal body? There should be a moment somewhere in there, right? Because they're gonna need it eventually. And this, friends, is one of the great silences of the Bible. Uh, To my knowledge, there is no scripture that addresses that question. There's no moment described anywhere in the Bible in which we see those who are born in the kingdom and come to faith in that time being resurrected, or as we might say, raptured, given a new body. Now clearly they have to be at some point because when we get a little further in the book of Revelation and we see the new heavens and new earth, we will be told definitively that in that time all sin is done away with, all death is done away with. So they must be glorified by that point. We just don't see where that happens. So it could happen any time after age 100, basically. It could happen at any point in the life they live on the kingdom or it could wait till the very end of the kingdom for all we know. It's somewhere in there, we just don't know where. Meanwhile, let's move to the next question and that would be how does anyone live 100 years on earth as an unbeliever with Jesus ruling in Jerusalem and not come to faith? That's a fundamental question many people ask. Students of the Bible have naturally wondered how you could construct a world like the one we're hearing about, ruled by Jesus personally, including this super class, if you will, of glorified human beings walking around, and with supernatural displays, we assume, at the, at the temple or wherever, and all of that going on in this world that's so different from ours, and yet people walk through that world and don't come to faith in Jesus, it seems completely impossible. But then if you think about it for a moment longer, you come to realize Well, these things aren't that hard to believe. First, remember, it's happened before. You know, when Jesus walked the earth and showed his power in that time and did some pretty impressive miracles, people didn't believe in him then. And if you go even further back, do you realize the Bible says that the generation that came out of Egypt with Moses, who saw all the plagues, and may I remind you, walked through the Red Sea, never mind everything else they saw around the mountain, that was an unbelieving generation, according to Hebrews. So clearly, supernatural displays do not 
create saving faith. And that's the testimony of the Bible from front to back. And never mind the fact that the unbelievers in the kingdom, these people we're talking about, they have no history in any of that. That is to say, they can read about it in the Bible, certainly, but they don't have any firsthand experience with it. They've been born during the time of the kingdom. So as strange as that world sounds to us now, for them, it's just normal. It's all they've ever known. So for them, there's nothing about that age, about how it works, uh, about the fact that there's this big mountain somewhere in the world with a big temple on top and rivers flowing out of it. I mean, they just take that for granted. It doesn't prove anything. It certainly doesn't tell them anything about the history of this world. Just as today, the world of unbelievers refuses to accept stories like Adam or Noah or even Abraham and other historical characters, it's in the Bible, but to them it's all made up. Well, no differently, when we get to the kingdom and people talk about what happened to Jesus on the cross and what happened to 2,000 plus years of church history and the like, never mind telling them about tribulation and all that came about in that period of history, which we haven't even experienced yet. To them, it's all just folklore because after the world is remade by Jesus in preparation for the kingdom, there's no archeological evidence, probably, there's no evidence on the earth that you could point to to say here's what proves the Bible is true. It's the same situation you have today. If you don't have faith in the word of God, you won't accept it. So if believers in that time, unbelievers in that time are presented with essentially the same situation we're presented with now, then it stands to reason they'll have the same uh, condition as now. That is, you have to put your faith in the word of God or you're not believing. And Going forward from that, most people assume that the unbeliever that lives in this time will at least be able to see Jesus. You know, that's the one fundamental difference that we assume will exist between then and now. That is, we know that today you have to have faith in the word of God in order to believe what we know about Jesus, but you might say, well, when I get to the kingdom, I can point to Jesus. I can show them Jesus. That'll make a difference, won't it? Well, here's the problem. Unbelievers in the kingdom will never see Jesus. They'll never see Jesus for the entire thousand years of the kingdom. We're gonna study the temple a little more next week and we'll learn more about his dwelling place. But for today on the issue of death, it's important to understand this one point. Ezekiel tells us that the Lord will dwell in the holy of holies, in the temple, for the entire thousand years. He never comes out. It's not as though you're gonna walk down the street and have a coffee with Jesus at Starbucks in the kingdom. He is not the kind of uh, figure that we got used to hearing about in the Gospels. He comes in his glorified form like John sees him in Revelation chapter one. And in that glorified form as the Shekinah glory of God, he dwells where the Shekinah glory of God has always dwelled, which is in the temple of God. Ezekiel says this in chapter 43, verse four. And the glory of the Lord, this, this by the way is the scene of the, of the opening of the temple at the opening of the kingdom. And Ezekiel is given a preview of that. He's able to see how the temple will open for business at the start of the kingdom. And this is what he sees, among other things. He says, and the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate facing toward the east. And the spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. And then I heard one speaking to me from the house while a man was standing beside me. He said to me, son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. So the Lord returns in his 
appearance of glory, similar to what John sees in chapter one. He comes back the way he left. Uh, The Shekinah glory of God departed from the temple back before Babylon invaded and destroyed the temple. And when it did, it left by way of the door of the temple. It went out the east gate. It went up to the Mount of Olives east of the city. And then from there, it disappeared. The glory of God has never returned to his temple since then. But it will come back in the time of the kingdom. When he comes back, it looks the same. It's the Shekinah glory again. And it comes back the same from the Mount of Olives through the east gate into the temple. And as it comes in, it will occupy this space that we call the Holy of Holies. Now, unlike the temple of Moses, there is no door. There is no veil in the time of the temple. We'll study more of this next week. And so if you got into position in the temple, in just the right moment, looking eastward into the doorway, you could see deep into the heart of the temple the glowing of the Shekinah glory of God. But in order to see it, you'll have to be in the inner court looking through the doorway. And according to what we learn in Ezekiel, there are only a few times in each year when that's available to people. On Sabbaths, on new moons, and on feast days. Other than those days, the door, not the door of the temple, but a gate in the courtyard is closed and it prevents you from being able to see through that narrow channel and into the temple doorway. And beyond even that, Ezekiel will also tell us that only believers are allowed to enter into the temple courtyard. So, if you're an unbeliever, you're never there at all. And even if you're a believer, you're only gonna see through that door for a brief moment when you're able to move through that space on one of those special days. So, apart from those unique situations, unbelievers around the world, the closest they're ever gonna get is they're gonna be able to go to the mountain and look up and see this building on top of a mountain, and that's it. And they're gonna have to depend on what they've heard, people telling them that's where the Lord lives, that's the house of God, that's where Jesus is. But again, no proof. Salvation is not a matter of sight. It's a matter of faith. The only way an unbeliever will recognize Jesus as king in that day and be saved as a result is by faith in the testimony of the word of God, and that has always been the requirement for faith, or I'm sorry, for salvation. It's always been that you must have faith, uh, faith in the promises of God in order to be saved. And it's never a matter of sight. Let me give you a couple of references for this in Hebrews chapter 11, verse one. We're told that faith is what? The sight of things hoped for? No, it's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And Paul says in Romans eight twenty four that in hope we have been saved and that hope is not something you've seen for who hopes for what he already sees. It's a really simple concept. If I tell you that you have to have faith that this podium exists, well, it doesn't require faith. It's, it's self-evidently here. You can see it. There's no trust required. There's no conviction required. Uh, but if I tell you that something exists that you cannot see, then you have a choice to make. Do you believe in my word or not? And the Bible will tell the unbelievers of that age, like it does ours today, the believers of our age today, that there is something to be believing in that's in this temple. They just cannot see it. So later we're told, in fact, that there is a day coming in which all who've ever lived will confess that Jesus is Lord. And God's plan of salvation depends on faith, depends on trust, and if it were the case in that day that someone could come to salvation because they could see Jesus, then it would nullify faith. 
It would nullify the plan of God for salvation. And only when they see Jesus after their judgment day will unbelievers then acknowledge that Jesus is in fact Lord, but of course at that moment they're acknowledging what they can see in their judgment. They're not acknowledging it on the basis of faith. Paul says in Philippians chapter two, verse nine, that God exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are, notice, in heaven. Well, that's us, of course we would do that. And on earth, those are the ones he meets when he comes in at the second coming. And under earth, those are the ones who have already died and are waiting judgment. They will all confess, he says, that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now you might say, well, if that's gonna happen, why aren't all people saved? Well, because these people will be confessing what they see at the moment of their judgment, which is not a matter of faith. It's too late at that point. It's self-evident. So Paul says that faith must be an acceptance of the word of God prior to it becoming self-evident to us. Since unbelief will remain a part of life in the kingdom, then faith remains the means to salvation. And if faith is required, then the truth of Christ cannot be self-evident, for it would nullify faith. So that tells you a number of things have to be true about this age. Like I said already, number one, Jesus can't go roaming the earth. The moment the Shekinah glory comes out of the temple and becomes visible to all the earth is a judgment moment for the earth. It is not a moment of salvation, because at that moment, he is seen and faith is nullified. So if anyone is gonna be saved during the time of the kingdom, he cannot be seen. Think about that for a moment. I know it's been said by some that if Jesus wanted to save everyone, he could just come back and show everyone that he exists and then they'd all be convinced. Ah, but they'd also all be judged at that moment. You see, the irony is he can only save those who believe without sight because that's what salvation requires according to God's plan. So when you ask that Jesus manifest himself to prove to someone that he is who he is, you're actually asking for that person to be judged, not saved. What you need to to ask for is that God would manifest the truth of his word to somebody, not his physical presence, and that they would then believe in his word so that they can be saved. That's how God has designed the plan of salvation. For the same reason, it also tells us something about our appearance. Think about it, if you ask yourself, well, if I'm, if I'm glorified, if I'm not dying, if I don't have sin, certainly that's going to be a testimony. And the world is going to look at us, those who are glorified and in the government, and say to themselves, well, gee, there's something different about you. You're different, you don't die, you have these you know, sinless nature and all this. That must mean that God really exists. That must mean that the Bible's true. Ah, but here again, we cannot nullify faith by our existence. So that would tell us that we do not assume an appearance that is any different than those who are around us. That is, instead of us having some kind of superhero, uh, you know, worldly, otherworldly appearance before the rest of the world, that would be a, a way of nullifying faith. No, it must be this case instead. We are in a state in which we blend in. Uh, That is, we are not showing ourselves in ways that are fundamentally different. Uh, We should expect that our physical construction will mirror the ones, the bodies that we have now so that we will fit in with the bodies that we will be around there. We won't have sin, we won't have disease, uh, but I would assume our appearance will remain fundamentally the same. Although I mentioned earlier, it may also be the case that we're not aging. And why do I say that? Well, because it would then help hide the fact that we don't die. If we live in a body that doesn't die, well then, for the same reason, we probably shouldn't age, right? Age is a 
a result of the curse that God put on the earth leading to death. No death, there's no need to age. But for the same reason, we might also expect that those who are living on the earth in natural bodies are given the ability to avoid aging as well, much like how Adam lived almost a thousand years. It may be the case that those who live for a hundred years and then die have never really looked like they've aged. And if so, then they're blending in with us and we're blending in with them. And so you might sit across from one of those people at age 99 and try to convince them you know, you only got one year left. You're gonna die if you don't believe in Jesus. And they're gonna look around and they're gonna go, I don't see any evidence that that's true. I just see everybody looking the same. That could be how it works. But perhaps most amazing of it all, you might ask, well, at least our sinless nature, certainly that would say something. That will be hard to hide. I mean, we can't sin. So when they see the difference, that should tell them something, right? Well, remember this. Jesus lived a sinless life on earth And yet, none of his earthly brothers, the ones who lived in the same house with him, knew that he was the Messiah. None of them, the Bible says, believed in his claims while he was on the earth. So if our Lord can live sinlessly on the earth, side by side with unbelievers, and they don't even notice, well then we should expect to be able to do the same. We'll live side by side with natural men and women, sinful, dying human beings, and yet, Our sinlessness, it won't challenge them one bit. It won't necessarily tell them anything about God. Certainly won't lead them to conclude that Jesus is Lord automatically. Now, I'm not saying we can't be a witness, obviously. That's different. But we witness through our testimony and through our lives. But just the fact that we are different from them and the fact that we don't have sin, that might lead them to see us as kind or especially good. Uh, But on the other hand, you know, it's also possible that they might see our sinlessness and feel convicted by it and look at us like goody two-shoes or that we think we're better than they are. You know, you've probably heard things like that from people sometimes when they perceive that we're trying to do the right thing and they don't take it in the way we would expect. It's easy for someone who lives a good life to be misunderstood by those who don't have the capacity to do the same. One thing we know for sure, though, our sinless nature cannot nullify faith. So it cannot be such that by our nature alone, people are convinced of the truth of the gospel. They have to be moved by the Spirit, just like today. So the unbelievers on that day will live with those who rule over them without appreciating the differences that exist between us. Meanwhile, we who are glorified will enjoy endless days of joy serving Jesus, presumably with many relationships. Uh, You can safely assume that you're gonna reestablish relationships with people that you know now here in this life who are believers who join you in the kingdom. You'll find them, you'll get to see them again, and you'll reunite those relationships. You'll also establish new relationships with believers, not just from the age you lived, but from all ages that lived on earth. People that you might know now who are famous and many that you've never heard of from the history books. Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus tells us that we'll be surprised when we find out who is in the kingdom and who isn't. That is, there'll be those who are in the kingdom who live terrible lives, at least from what we can tell, but we didn't realize they came to faith. Maybe some point near the end of their life, maybe even in the middle of their life, it just wasn't as evident as we might have expected because of how they lived their life, but by faith alone, they'll be in the kingdom. And that might be a surprise to us when we see who, they, who that includes. But by the same token, there will be some missing from the kingdom who lived very pious lives, maybe some who had well-known ministries, and yet they never knew the Lord personally, and we'll be surprised that they're missing. But we're gonna have a 1,000 years 
to make it around the world, meet as many saints as we can, and learn all their stories. I suspect that tourism in the day of the kingdom will be less about seeing things in the world in terms of nature and cities and the like, and be more about people tourism, going to find people that you remember reading about that you've always wanted to talk to. That's gonna be what I do when I get a chance to travel. Uh, I mean, you could pick up the Bible. Remember, the word of God will still exist in that time. So we'll be able to pick up the Bible while we're in the kingdom and read the book of Jonah and then close the book and say, you know what? I got some questions for this guy. Let's go find him and find Jonah and talk to him. Ever wondered what it felt like to be in a boat with animals for over a year during a flood? Have coffee with Noah. Uh, curious what the Red Sea must have looked like when it was standing on every, each side of the people of Israel? I don't know, go find Moses or Miriam. Want to ask Aaron, what he was he thinking? Uh, you want to talk to Abraham and say, what's the deal with Hagar? Get in line, you'll probably be behind a bunch of people with the same question. Anyway, the more you consider these issues, the more reason you have to look forward to the kingdom life. It's not sitting on, harp, on clouds with harps and all that nonsense. It is a real life. It's gonna be everything that you like about life today that is redeemable, if you will, and nothing you don't. It's going to be life with fulfillment in place of disappointment. It's gonna be life with meaning instead of uh, the senselessness of life that we often feel now, the pointlessness of it. It's gonna have rhythm. It's gonna have stability. It's gonna have all of that without fear and worry. And it's gonna be a life where the prospect of growing old and dying is completely absent, where the consequences of sin are no more, days filled with a work that you enjoy that is uh, easy, pastimes that that don't hurt you, uh, possessions that don't fade away or fail. And for the unbeliever, those same things are true for at least as long as they live, up to 100 years, which is grace in itself. And for those who come to faith, it won't end either. And in the midst of that near-perfect world, I say near-perfect because sin still exists, in the midst of that, you'll have unbelievers being told this, that if they want to continue in this bliss, they have to believe in Jesus. Now, I've heard it said that one of the hardest places in the world to evangelize is a place with a prosperous economy and a good safety net, social systems, and, and, and the utopia of everyday life. Those places are often the most inoculated to the gospel. So think about how hard it will be in the kingdom when life is near perfect. There seems to be so little that you would worry about, but yet there's still sin and there's still death, and you have to convince people, and not by our power, obviously, but by God's power, you have to present to them the truth that life is not going to continue for that in that way unless they believe in Jesus. What else can we know about life in this day? Well, there's a few other things. Uh, let's take a look at Jewish life in the kingdom particularly. Isaiah gives us this, Isaiah 4.2. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. It will come about that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst, by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day, even smoke, and the brightness of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory will be a canopy. There will be shelter to give shade from the heat by day and refuge and protection from the storm and the rain. So this passage opens uh, with a familiar statement. I gave you some context here just to make sure that you see that it's talking about the kingdom coming out of the tribulation, going into the kingdom. 
And in this time after tribulation, it says that Israel will be holy, everyone, will be re- everyone who's recorded for life in Jerusalem will be holy. Uh, they'll be uh, both natural and uh, glorified Jews, but they'll all be believing. And it says that Jerusalem will be covered by the Shekinah glory of God. Now we know Jesus is in the temple, but apart from his glory in the temple, there will also be this uh, display of God's glory over the mountain itself. The temple itself will be part of a, a great mountain, and it will include Jerusalem, and it, we'll talk more about this next week, but on top of this mountain is a flat plain of about 50 square miles, and the city of Jerusalem is about 10 square miles, and the temple itself is almost a square mile just itself. And this whole area is covered by a cloud during the daytime so that it's always in a persistent shaded state, kept cool from the sun. At night, it becomes a flaming fire in the sky which gives constant illumination over the temple. And the effect of both of these is to prevent storms, rain, and the like from falling in this area like a canopy, Isaiah says. The glory of the Lord will be honored in these ways. It's much like what you read about in the Exodus when Israel was wandering in the desert. Similar idea, again, God present among his people, occupying that space, and then the people protected as a result. What about Gentile life in the kingdom? What else can we learn about them? Well, there's not a lot, but there are a few things. Isaiah says this in 56, 6, he says, also the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. So in the kingdom, Isaiah says there'll be foreigners or strangers, which is always a biblical reference to Gentiles when you look at it in the Old Testament. So Gentiles will join themselves to the Lord, it says, to minister to him because they love him and they will live as servants and they will observe the millennial law. We'll talk more about that law next week and they will be brought to the holy mountain to joyfully take part in the house of prayer. Now we know that's a reference to the temple, of course, referring to the the operation of the temple. So what we're learning is this, that in the time of the kingdom, there will be some Gentiles who are workers and likely priests in the temple under the millennial law, which is the law that will guide the operation of the temple in that day, and as such, they'll do things that priests do. They'll offer sacrifices and offerings in the temple similar to the Jewish priests that will also be there with them. Now in the earlier law of Moses and in the temple on earth, only a Jew could do this. Obviously only a Jew could enter into the temple proper and certainly only Jews and of a certain tribe could be part of the, uh, the uh, priests that serve in that temple. But in the kingdom, as you read there, the temple will be known as a house of prayer for all peoples, that is for all Gentiles, and as such they'll be serving in this place too. It's no longer limited to just Jewish servants. And there'll be other places or services that the Gentiles render to Israel in that day. Isaiah says this in chapter 66, verse 18. For I know their works and their thoughts. The time is coming to gather all the nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them, and will send survivors from them to the nations, Tarshish, Put, Lud, Meshach, Tubal, and Javan to the distant coastlands that have neither heard my fame nor seen my glory. They will declare my glory among the nations." 
Then they shall bring all their brethren from all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord on horses and chariots and litters, on mules and on camels to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the sons of Israel bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. I will also take some of them for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. So in the kingdom, the Lord's gonna populate the world around the globe with believing Gentiles who come in on that first day, including you or me, and the Lord says that the world will know his works and his glory because those Gentile believers will have access to the temple. And you and I will be able to go into the temple and see the glory of God. And that's how we'll see things that Gentiles have never seen before. And on certain days of the year as we do that, we'll be giving him glory for it. And then it says that this will be a sign. You notice he says there'll be a sign for the nations. What he means is this, when we go back to our home and whatever nation he puts us in, we are a sign to those in that nation who couldn't go to the temple because they're unbelievers about what we saw. Our, we are the sign, we are the, the testimony to the, the nations and we witness to the righteousness of Christ from what we saw in the temple and from what we know of him, declaring the glory of the Lord to distant nations, he says in verse 19. And interestingly, in verse 20, he says that there will be those among the Gentiles who will bring Israel's brethren back to Jerusalem on horses, chariots, and the like. What that seems to describe is the initial days of the kingdom. When we first get there, Jews will be brought to Jerusalem for a celebration at the temple, and they'll be brought by Gentiles. And I think there's something God's doing in that. Just as God used Gentiles to scatter Israel when they were disobedient, he will use Gentiles to gather Israel back in that time, symbolically showing that Israel now is the chief nation on earth and has returned to a place of honor. And then Isaiah ends by saying, some of those Gentile believers who moved Jewish believers back to the temple, who were part of that convoy, they will be honored by being allowed to stay in the temple and serve as priests in that place. So some Gentiles who may be part of the government in a distant land will be promoted. They're gonna be called up to the majors and they're gonna work in the government seat of Christ in the temple itself as a great honor. Near the end of tonight, let's go a couple more places and then we'll be done. In chapter 14 of Isaiah, we learn this about Gentiles. When the Lord will have compassion on Jacob again and choose Israel and settle them in their own land, then strangers will join them and attach themselves to the house of Jacob. The peoples will take them along and bring them to their place, and the house of Israel will possess them as an inheritance in the land of the Lord as male servants and female servants, and they will take their captors captive and will rule over their oppressors. Some of that's what we just read from another passage, but the key difference, the new thing here is, did you notice in verse two, that some of those who bring Israel along will be left behind as well, but not in the temple now, but rather to be an inheritance, to serve as a possession of Israel. That is, they'll be servants of the people of Israel. Now, to be a servant of Israel in this case is a place of honor, not a slavery thing. It's not an oppression thing. It's a privilege to serve in that way, and certainly we're serving other believers, so we will not be mistreated. This is just another way in which we can serve in the kingdom. And then, Lastly, I wanna talk about what happens when there is disobedience in the kingdom. There's one interesting, intriguing passage in the Old Testament that says what happens when a nation of Gentiles in that day decides to disobey the Lord. It comes in Zechariah chapter 14. There is a rule in the government that says you must come to Jerusalem to worship at least once a year at the Feast of Booths, 
And this is what we hear. Zechariah 14, 16. It will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. If the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Now, as it says there, families from every nation will be required to observe this feast. It's the final feast on the Jewish calendar. And notice what happens if they decide to skip church that week. Uh, A drought will be the one and only response that the Lord sends to those who refuse to go. And it says by family. Now it says the family of Egypt, so maybe it's by nation. But it also leaves open the possibility that literally one family unit doesn't get rain. Now remember, the earth is producing produce effortlessly at this time because rain is so plentiful. Take away the rain. Remember that because the rain's so plentiful in normal circumstances, they're not building irrigation systems. No one's worrying about the source of water. It's always available. So if it dries up, there is an immediate and devastating effect on agriculture because there's no backup system. And so that is an effective deterrent against disobedience. And then lastly, life will be utterly satisfying. And Isaiah gives us this for both Jew and Gentile in one final passage for tonight. Chapter 65, verse 21. Speaking of what life will be like for us there, Isaiah says, they will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. And my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. So look, if you've ever wanted to design and build that perfect house, the one that you say you'll never need another one, well, you're gonna get that chance in the kingdom. You're gonna live in a house that you build, apparently, and I suspect that what you'll build there will far surpass anything you've tried to build here. In fact, I think it's a general rule of scripture that the life that you have here and now, the best you can make for yourself, is going to pale in comparison to the one that you will have in the next world, which is why the Bible warns us against investing too much of ourselves in this world rather than waiting for our reward. But he says you'll be able to build that house and live in it, no one's gonna take it from you. You're not gonna end up building a house for someone else to live in. And you're not gonna plant crops and then have to give the food away or have the the crops taken by somebody, it'll be yours as well. The point of this is you're gonna get what you expect out of your labor, it's gonna be satisfying and rewarding. And notice uh, Isaiah says that the days of our life will be like that of a tree such that this enjoyment isn't short-lived. Isn't it the way things seem to go here? If things are going really well, they don't last long, and if things are troublesome, they tend to drag on. Well, in the kingdom, good stuff never stops. The good times never end, it seems. And he says your life will be like the life of a tree. You know, there's trees on earth that live 2,000 years or more. The kingdom is obviously not 2,000 years, it's only 1,000, but the point is we go from the kingdom to something else that's just as good. There's never an end to the life that we live once we reach eternity, and we will wear out the work of our hands. And for those who can marry and reproduce that group of natural born that we've talked about, they will not labor, child labor in other words, they will not labor in vain, there'll be no infant mortality as we discussed, their, their offspring will be the, the offspring of the blessed of the Lord. And every parent will enjoy 
having children and raising them without fear that something will take them away when they're young. So having covered for what we have from scripture here uh, on the nature of life in the kingdom, this is really where we wrap that up. There's not much more to say. Uh, and in fact, there's a whole lot unaddressed in scripture. And I bet you have a lot of questions for me, questions I could give you. Like what will the level of technology be in the kingdom? Will we enjoy the conveniences that we have today? Uh, or or w- on the other hand, will we be rescued from the hectic, connected life that we've now become accustomed to? What about entertainment? Will there be entertainment? Plays, movies, will people write books? Will there be sports played in that time? Uh, can you move? If you don't like where you are, can you go to another country? Uh, is there money? Is there an economy? Uh, do people buy and sell things? Um, I think the Lord has intentionally left questions like that unanswered and many more like them so that when we get there, the kingdom will be this never-ending series of surprises. And I wanna remind you how much life here can astonish you, and can even please you, and that's despite the terrible condition of the world. So if that's true for a sinful fallen world, then ask yourself, how much better can it be when there is no sin or what sin there is is under control and you have none of it and the curse is gone, the world is at peace and Christ is in control ruling it all. It will truly be glorious. Next week we look at the temple operations, the worship system, the sacrificial system and the like and then following that, our last week in the kingdom period, we will look at the events that bring the thousand years to an end. I hope you can join me for all of that. Meanwhile, we're gonna close in prayer, as we always do. I have our associate pastor, Mike Morris, here with me again tonight, uh, manning uh, the phone where you guys are texting your questions right now. If you have a question, feel free to send that on to him and he will sort through those and give me the ones uh, for us to answer tonight and I'll do that here in just a moment live with you. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, how much we long for the things we've heard about in that kingdom to come and we look forward to that day eagerly and as I pray each time, Father, I ask that you'd give us a heart to wanna share this with others so that we would turn that excitement into the energy of witness and testimony but also, Father, for our own sake right now as we face difficult days, I pray, Father, you would use the truth of what we've learned to encourage our hearts knowing that this world is passing and that no matter what comes, no matter how dark days get, it matters not to those who have overcome the world for in the end, Father, good days are coming, good days that can never be taken from us and that we long for more than anything, Father. And we thank you for that knowledge to encourage us. We thank you for that future. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.